The Canby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's June 8th, 2022, and there are 129 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a very interesting interview today with Brian Kelsey uh, on the mayor's quote-unquote slush fund. But speaking of slush funds, please contribute to ours at patreon.com slash Report. Yes, patreon.com slash Report. You can support this podcast and help us make more as we move towards the election. We'll at some point start recording more frequently, but life keeps getting in the way. Yes, it is. Life is a impediment to living and podcasting, as it turns out. But without further ado, our interview with Brian Kelsey. Well, joining me now from Winnipeg is Brian Kelsey, political consultant and, I don't know, municipal politics gadfly. Welcome to Canby Report, Brian. Gadfly seems a little gadfly. Like geek. You can use geek if you want. Or, or All right, geek. Tap, you know. Well, tell me a bit about your history with municipal politics. Give you know our listeners a bit of context on who you are and why we're talking to someone from Winnipeg today. Well, I, I, I often tell people I have three hometowns. I, I follow Vancouver politics for a number of reasons, but one of them is I grew up in, on Vancouver Island in, in Victoria and obviously have a lot of you know, ex-Victorian friends who live in Vancouver and a lot of Vancouverites who, friends who live in Vancouver. But I've also lived and worked an equal number of times in Winnipeg and Toronto. I managed David Soknacki's uh, nerd campaign for mayor in Toronto in 2014. I've been involved as a uh, senior advisor in probably five or so uh, Winnipeg mayoral campaigns uh, from various directions up to this point. I've been a candidate for city council, although you know, I'm, I'm kind of a self-described green Tory and worked at Coles Park for five years in a number of different senior political roles since then. So since about 2003, I've focused entirely on all my work of various kinds on, on municipal politics and, and local politics in part, because, you know, I don't love the partisanship of the provincial and federal, which is obviously pertinent to the Vancouver situations. And yeah, I, I also was vice president of policy and public affairs for the Toronto region board of trade for a couple of and, you know, urban economies are the future of Canada, and we need to pay more attention to, to how city and city politics can, can influence the outcomes of we're getting in, in urban politics. And so you have a deep insight into how city halls work, but you also don't have any of the biases of anyone in Vancouver because you're not on any of the campaigns. So we're hoping to get kind of that outsider perspective on a couple of the debates that are happening right now. And you've weighed into a few of them on your Twitter account, at State of the City. The first one I want to raise is this one that was brought up by Daphne Bramham. These are actually both Daphne Bramham articles in the Vancouver site. They are part of a broader milieu. Is this idea that the mayor is running around with a slush fund, as it's been called, $4 million in funding over four years, basically a million dollars a year to the mayor's office, and that that is being used for partisan purposes. It's being used to fund, for example, political staff like his chief of staff, Alvin Singh, who was also involved in some of Kennedy Stewart's past election campaigns and some polling data. Let's talk a little bit about what is this money? Is this uncommon? It's it's 
this really is a thing that, you know, I've been quoted on Vancouver politics before by Francis Beale and others and, and a number of issues. And uh, yet I, I have, I've never until now kind of really forcefully weighed in. This year, there were two things that, that kind of set me off. One was the, the police, police decision from the province. And then these magic words, lush fund really set me off because the truth, as I said in my Twitter feed, is, is I agree with half of what, you know, what uh, Daphne's column, Dr. Barnum's column was, was saying, and that, that there is a need for, a, a, you know, somebody who worked in a mayor's office for three years in Winnipeg in a strong mayor system, and then became a strong critic of the, after I left his office, I, I can tell you there's a need for accountability around how mayors spend their money. But there's also a need for mayors to spend money and to, to start from the premise, as her column did, and as the NPA and ABC and Ken Simmons on Cooper have, that all $1 million or $1.3 in the last budget I checked that the, the mayor has discretion over is political slush, is it's self-defeating as well as, as, you know, a little bit, you know, factually problematic. Mayor's offices across the country have budgets. They need budgets. I know of a couple of mayors who went, got, ran for uh, office and got elected on a promise to cut their budgets. And they regretted it within months because of the way, you know, mayoral expectations work in our growing cities. Everything flows up. Stuff that the mayor doesn't have authority over doesn't mean somebody isn't going to ask what the mayor's view on it is. Likewise, everything flows down in the sense that metro governments, the provincial government of Victoria, the federal government, they don't want to talk to a city manager. They don't want to talk to a city councilor. They don't care about those people. They want to talk to a mayor's office so they're negotiating with one party. And then it's the mayor's job to figure out how to deal with all the other stakeholders and everything else. All of that creates demand on, and they have to be staffed who report to the mayor because ultimately those are political decisions. That doesn't mean it's, it's campaign slush fund expenditures. If you've got somebody who's responsible for intergovernmental affairs, for example, which, which, you know, the mayor's org chart shows he does in Vancouver, it means that you've got a need for staff who are politically savvy, understand you know, the mandate the mayor was elected on, understand how to get votes through and are not part of the permanent public service. It's no different from having political staff or cabinet ministers. And you don't see people saying that every one of, of, you know, every PMO staffer or every staffer and, you know, the minister of finance office is, is political slush fund spending. They could probably cut those budgets, but that's a different discussion. And it's one, I think that even came up as Kennedy Stewart was running for mayor, because a lot of these criticisms date back to the way Gregor Robertson and Vision Vancouver ran the city. And there was a lot of animus towards that. It was viewed as too partisan, too kind of, if you're not with us, we don't care about you. And I think one of the first things Kennedy Stewart actually did was cut the mayor's office budget a bit and give redistribute that money to councillors. So councillors could also have. Right. And so, I mean, that begs the question, are those council staff also political slush fund Stafford. I mean, I, I, I looked before, before we spoke this morning at the, you know, most recent report I could find in Italy, which was 2019 that broke down the mayor's office budget. And, you know, the truth is, you know, by my standards as, as a, you know, cynic who's been in a senior role in the mayor's office and who has spent actual slush fund money, because there's, there's slush funds in the, the Winnipeg. Winnipeg budget for the mayor. They're, they're nowhere near the mayor's office budget, right? So as somebody with that experience, I looked at that budget and, you know, there's probably close to 200,000 that could be turned into slush if you wanted it to. The bigger question where I, I agree Mayor Stewart has, I'll put it this way, has invited some criticism is that 
as I said in my Twitter feed, you know, I, I know a lot of mayor's office staff and ex-mayor's office staff across the country, and I am one myself. And there was and is, especially because many of them come from provincial and federal politics, an understanding amongst that club that the same rules you'd see applied at Queen's Park or in Victoria or, you know, on Broadway here in Manitoba or in Parliament Hill apply to a mayor's office for all sorts of reasons of public confidence and anything else. That if you're campaigning, you're, you're, you're logging the fact that it's on your own time after hours, or you're taking a leave of absence and it's your problem to pay for it. I did that when I, I, you know, Mayor Cates was an incumbent and I was working for him in 2006 and mayor wanted me to help one of his favorite counselors in, in a tough race. And I burned, you know, three months worth of my own savings to go and run that campaign. No government documents, no government cell phone, no government, you know, access. Everybody was talking to me, was talking to me after hours and so on from the, the mayor's office. Even though I was the mayor's, you know, budget advisor and obviously pretty, you know, in a pretty senior role. It's not clear. And, you know, maybe, maybe they're, they're hundred percent on the right side of the line of this, but it's not clear from some of the activity we've seen. The podcast comes up as a great example. It's, it's, it's becoming fuzzy for, for Mayor Stewart over the last six months. You know, what is political versus what is public service work done by political staff. And so for those things, I think there's an expectation that you, you can, you can draw those lines and proactively demonstrate that you're, you're using, you know, political discretionary funds for the city's purposes. I'm not, I'm not clear if that's there to think it. And that would be a great place for, for candidates like the progress or, or NPA or ABC to be taking shots in the mirror and saying, well, look, we can reduce that budget by two staffers and the a hundred thousand dollars for, you know, or $90,000 I saw in the 2019 budget for, for other expenses. We can have rules that say, if there's a poll, it's the public's poll and everybody should see the results, which was standard, you know, we lived by when I was in the office in early 2000s and that's not happening. And that's, that's, I think the difference between saying you've got a slush versus saying that, you know, there's room for the mayor's office as a costly political office to set an example for positive example for the rest of the, the, the public service city bureaucracy. And yeah, it all dates back to my biggest criticism of vision, you know, again, Green Corey, I liked that they were sort of pro-business and pro-environment. I, I really didn't like how they were, you know, seemingly pretty, pretty ruthless in terms of, of imposing a, a part of a pro, highly partisan approach, more so than many of their predecessors and their opportunity regimes involved. So. I think that leads us into the other article Bramham had recently on the Americanization of Vancouver politics and whether that's created, quote unquote, dysfunctional city governance. Uh, I think the thrust of her argument is that we've essentially adopted a strong mayor model where all of the power sits in the, you know, mayor's office. We look to that person, even if they don't necessarily have the tools, but, and the power that necessarily a strong mayor would, but we're really looking at, you know, that centralization of authority and approach. Well, I, I mean, all you have to do is look at the, you know, the biggest problem Kennedy Stewart has as a mayor is nobody can really uh, agree on what he's accomplished. And, you know, strong mayors who are actively strong generally get to accomplish a lot of things because they're, they're making decisions and, you know, council can't really stop them even if they have oversight over them. You know, I, I, I think Vancouver has the foundations of a strong mayor system. And I've said, I've said this in two places before in a University of Toronto task force report I worked on with Gabriel uh, Eidelman, you know, writing star in, in urban studies and at the U of T there, he and I created a task force under the University of Toronto umbrella to sort of look at Toronto's system compared to other systems. 
And at that point, we kind of coined this notion of, of strong legislative mayors versus strong executive. Strong executive mayors are the American model. And it's important to understand that less than half of American municipalities have anything close to that model. So it's a bit odd to kind of paint anything like that as, as Americanization. A lot of European, you know, South African systems, a lot of other systems internationally have what we'd call a strong legislative model. It's fair to say Montreal has that. Winnipeg without parties has that because the mayor has the authority to appoint a cabinet and that cabinet can meet secretly and they get pay bumps. And believe me, it works to, to keep councillors in, in line, maybe a bit too well. Vancouver, whenever, whenever a political party wins a majority or the mayor can negotiate a majority, then it looks and feels like a strong mayor system because just as in Europe, in a lot of major European cities, if you've got a majority on council, even if you're legally required to do everything through a council decision to get anything done and the mayor can't write executive orders or, or boss staff around, the outcome is the same, right? That, that, that if you, you know, the mayor doesn't have to write an order saying they want the city manager or the CEO to do, to do something. They just have to smile and say, well, either you do it or we're going to have a council motion in 20 minutes that you know will pass and, and you get the same. So, I mean, what's happened and, and where I, I think, again, I half agree with, with these two columns is that I don't think you have Americanization. I do think you have the underpinnings of a strong mayor system, which is very common around the world. It's not a strictly American phenomenon. I think some of those underpinnings have collapsed when vision collapsed and what you have is, is the remnants of that in terms of both high expectation for Mayor Stewart as an independent to get stuff done that he couldn't meet because he doesn't have a, a council majority to support him on the one hand. And he's trying to correct that lesson, obviously, now. And secondly, you have, you know, slightly higher, I think, funding and supports built into the, the city public service and other systems that reflect the fact that this system used to be run uh, on a pretty sort of executive. So Bramham cites you in her article on the Americanization and the policy options piece that I've alluded to, and we'll get into the specific recommendations you have, because I think they're interesting. But she says your suggestions won't work because they're based on a ward system. And I think you didn't like that. I was confused by it. I mean, I, I, I you know, there was a conversation with the next city manager I had as part of that over lunch during one of those, those sessions where we were talking strong, weak mayor, and I described how the system worked in Winnipeg, which always astounds everybody once you actually describe it. And, you know, she jumped in and said, well, I guess that means we can't recommend a strong mayor system because of all the terrible things you saw. And, you know, I, I kind of was a little specious in the sense that, you know, the, the, the problem, I mean, there are problems with Winnipeg's model, but the pro real problem with what went wrong with Winnipeg's model, where we had a lot of allegations, you know, uh, corruption and what I call greasy politics and everything else. So, the ex-city uh, manager has been convicted in civil court of, of accepting bribes in the last year, for instance, from that era, right? And, and a lot of the problems came about not because there weren't checks and balances built into the system, but because councillors, for a bunch of political reasons, got frankly comfortable and stopped being the check and balance that they had the right to be. You know, this, is, this speaks to this slush fund issue in the sense that, you know, like having a ward system or not having a ward system doesn't really make a difference here in the sense that Kennedy Stewart doesn't have a partisan majority, you know, obviously on Vancouver city council right now, Vancouver city councilors from opposing parties are busy saying the mayor has this, you know, million dollar slug fund. Well, they pass it, right? Mm. 
how much attention have they focused on getting more details, more scrutiny, more receipts, more itemized discussion, more oversight over get all emails and, and, and work schedules and so on for the partisan staff and the partisan expenses and everything else that they're worried about in that budget. I mean, it's only coming up now and, and occasionally came up as a bullet point over the, the previous um, two years. So the checks and balances are there. I don't think, a, although it certainly would have some influence, I don't think a ward system in Vancouver is the thing that stops you or doesn't stop you from having a strong mayor system. I think you need, if you went to a, you know, a four more formalized strong mayor system, what you really need is a lot of formalized safeguards so that you can be absolutely sure that if the mayor decides to not be transparent, it's not in his or her hands to really make that decision because the other institutions in the system will, will, you know, curl up and, and, and lash out at that kind of behavior. That's what wrong, went wrong in Winnipeg was public service rolled, council rolled, province didn't enforce legislation that it had the power to enforce to stop these problems. And, you know, the cops pursued charges and prosecutors never filed, filed charges, despite there obviously being some evidence based on that civil suit I referenced to do so. So you need, you need a robust, she's right in that you need robust checks and balances. I don't know if Vancouver has that right now. So you do write up three possible changes that could strengthen a more coherent strategy into municipal politics, a sort of, that would move us towards this more strong mayor type approach or this one that I, I'm, I'm not even trying to say that you're necessarily arguing for strong mayors, if I understand it right, but that I think the average voter thinks we have this model, but we don't. And so maybe moving to that model will at least solve that disconnect or else we need to convince a lot of voters that the system doesn't work the way they think it does. Yeah, we, we have, you know, uh, I, I've been working on a book about mirrors for, for seven years and had a lot of family events interrupted. Hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll have, we'll be able to talk about it when I finish their damn thing. Maybe this out. A good source that's similar on this point is Kate Graham's doctoral thesis. Kate Graham just unfortunately lost, you know, her race to be uh, a member of provincial parliament in London. She's an academic from Western and she's done the definitive work on through a thesis on Canadian, uh, on Canadian mayors. And one of the things she found, I don't agree hundred percent with the premise on this, but one of the things that she found was that a lot of Canadian mayors are shocked when they get elected at how little formal authority they have which is why I'm constantly pounding on Twitter that if you want to run for mayor and read the, read the legislation first, right? Like, you know, you wouldn't have applied for a job without knowing what the job is. But, but yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 the point comes through in Grand City, this point comes through in, in daily politics in cities across the country is that, you know, if you've got people voting directly for a mayor, they're going to have certain expectations that the mayor can do stuff, right? And. Yet at the same time, we've got a system where councillors constantly insist that, you know, the mayor's really just a member of council and first among equals. And, you know, why are they better than you? Well, they're better than you because they're, they're running, you know, and this, this point is a little less important in Vancouver, but in Winnipeg, for instance, a meeting where a bunch of us as political staff in his second term sat down with Mayor Cates and he was responding to some council criticism. And we said, look, we did the math and you've literally won, you know, more votes than council, right? All of those councillors mm -hmm. put together, you you should use that mandate. You know, unfortunately didn't use it wisely after that point, but the, the point remains is that, that people pay more attention to the mayor's race for a reason and they have higher expectations for the mayor for a reason. And it's dishonest to voters, not 
you know, not an issue of whether it's more fun for mayors or not, to not give the mayor at least some tools to lead politically, even if you're not going to give them the power to hire and fire, you know, particular staff or, or disrupt the public service for different ways. So the specific proposals I had in there, I, I describe myself as a stronger mayor advocate, but the whole notion of a, a power to propose, which is what I articulated in that policy options article with help from Patrick Gill, when he was with me at the board of trade, who sort of came up with the, you know, part of the name for the concept was to say, you know, if, if you don't want mayors to have absolute power, at least give them the power to, to, to put stuff on the table more. So give them the power to, to, to be the leaders on the draft budget. They're the mayor, right? People expect that, that, you know, it's going to be, if they see a draft budget, they think the mayor had something to do with it and pretending, you know, that the public service should be doing that on its own without some input from the person who had, had that mandate is, is bizarre. Council can still amend it. Council can still vote it down. Mm-hmm. Just let them do the draft. Get them out of the speaker's chair, which I think matters in Vancouver. You know, it's a confusing role. And then she had some problems with this in Calgary as well, where you're trying to be neutral and steer the debate. At the same time, you're trying to lead it. It's, it's, it's a childish disconnect to expect somebody who you want to be able to answer every question implicitly is in a role where they're literally supposed to be dodging every question and, and, and treating everybody with, with equal. Yeah. I think we saw that most controversially in Vancouver over this decision not to enact one of the climate policies around parking fees across the city, where throughout the public hearings and debates. Mayor Stewart just remained quiet and directed debate as chair and then votes against it, kind of against his progressive colleagues without really being able to give an answer to why he did that. And instead it's by press release and it seems dishonest. The, the municipal world is asking me to actually write an article on this, on this point. And, and, you know, they're giving me 12 to 14 other words and it's going to be tough, you know, to, to keep it to that because the number of examples like this are, are, are just endless from city to city to city. And I'll give you another one just recently in Bank, Metro Vancouver, and that's, you know, Doug McCallum in Surrey is obviously under siege for some of his behavior. And when you've got counselors coming forward to try and get some accountability for that behavior, if, who's sitting in the chair <laughs> making, you know, passing judgment and making decisions over whether they're in order or not, you know, the guy with, with, you know, no, no small conflict in terms of what the rules are. So I think you get mayors out of the chair, find one of the three or four different ways to to get a speaker, Winnipeg's had one of their councillors serve as speaker, and it's a job a lot of councillors want to do for, you know, as long as I've been alive, literally since 1970, since the city was created there. And so, you know, it's not the end of the world to do that. And last but not least, give the mayor the power to do something that I think in Vancouver, especially under, under vision is already implicitly there. And just, let's just be honest about it and formalize it. So you don't have to play games anymore. And that is let mayors pick up the phone and call public servants and say, okay, well, federal government's called me and said they want to cooperate on widgets production. I want a proposal on widgets production, production that's got realistic numbers. And then I can take it to council as opposed to, you know, if, if you're following the system's rules to the letter as, as in Toronto, for instance, I think Mayor Tory's smart track plan was, you know, absurd and campaigned against it, but the guy did win an election on it and he had to go through, you know, a dozen motions just to get instructions to public servants to even to start to look into the feasibility, even though he had just won an election on it. Why can't he write up, you know, 
Why does he have to beg for permission and negotiate with counselors just to get a, a fully formed proposal on the table? And you would speed up a massive number of things that, you know, citizens voted for and wanted and allow for more informed debate to get out the door. Just if you skip that step of requiring counsel authorization to look into something before you actually get to a fully formed proposal. And I think those things are, are what I would call my minimum, you know, minimum disruptive ask that if you could do those three things, you could keep Canadian municipal systems more or less as they are in terms of their power structure, uh, and yet give the mayor just enough additional authority that they can actually have, you know, 50% better odds of actually delivering on some of the things that, that the public wanted when they voted for these things. Well, speaking of voting, let's just close off with some of your general thoughts. I know you're following the Vancouver election and it's quite a chaotic mess as we've been covering as it was four years ago. And it's great. What are your general takeaways from an outsider? I think the NPA and ABC are operating within a window where they're more likely to succeed right now. I don't like some of the shots they've taken at the Stewart administration in part because, you know, when you're talking about the soft fund piece, for example, one of the comments I made on Twitter, I think probably the most important is, is that, you know, let's not pretend that there isn't going to be a mayor's office budget if one of those two parties, right? So if there is a mayor's office budget, either of them has been elected saying all oh, 1 million of that or 1.3 or whatever is, is political slush. And they're going to suddenly have to, you know, admit that that was fiction and come up with a more reasonable number. They could have started by coming up with a more reasonable number. There's a lot of that stuff. I mean, I think on crime, yeah, Kennedy Sturt could be, could be taking a different approach on crime. I think Vancouver does have a crime problem. I'm not crystal clear how the NPA and, and ABC reconcile their views on the province you know, deciding whether or not, and, and the police board deciding whether or not how the, the police board should get to spend whatever it wants to spend with the notion that they want to have some civic control over getting better outcomes from policing and other safety programs on the street. So it's kind of, it's in, it's in more interesting debate than four years ago, but a lot of it's based on, you know, a, a fictional disconnect of what can and should be possible relative to what's there. To me, the two most interesting things that are still undecided are a, you know, how much do things polarize in the Labor Day window behind or not behind Kennedy in terms of clear left-right split, you know, because he's sort of operating in an environment where he's trying to advance his own supporters, but still is going to end up having to rely, obviously, on the support of a couple of other parties if he wins. So that relationship is, is funny and still not entirely tested. The other variable for me that I'm watching closely is of Mark Marison in progress, because as I wrote, you know, I did a lot of research on this for my, you know, never to be produced book and summarized some of that in an article for Dotton Gazette last year on the New York race. This is a notion of back of the pack candidates where one of the things that makes mayoral races fun is people who sometimes start at one or 2%, like Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, like Mayor Bowman who's sitting, who's sitting as, as mayor in Winnipeg in his last term, people who start in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh position can end up becoming the mayor in these wide open races. And in, in Marison's case, he is, you know, that's, I, I itemized in that article, six or seven things that were patterns from all the mayors who've done this across the continent and in London. I mean, city con is an example of this phenomenon as well. He's ticking off, you know, and, and it almost looks like consciously he's ticking off a bunch of those boxes and 
last poll had him up in the 8% range, which is kind of where you want to be around Labor Day, 8, 10, 12% when, when your support starts to hockey stick, if, if you're going to pull that off. So I wouldn't count him out yet. And he's, he's straddling an interesting place there. You know, if, if Harvard pulls out, that'll be interesting too. But, you know, if, if there's been a competitive race in Toronto this year, a lot of Torontonians figured Matlow would have been, Josh Matlow would have been running in the headspace where, where Councillor Hardwick is, is running now. And so if she does very well or, or, you know, well enough to even win, that's going to excite a lot of Nimby candidates across the country to start looking at that. Yeah, it's definitely a very volatile point in the election. We have so very few polls to actually even say, and or at least publicly. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I am... Um, actively working with and for Scott Gillingham's campaign here in Winnipeg. And, you know, we had this conversation with him. He's a two-term counselor, you know, doesn't, hadn't thought a lot about mayoral races until, you know, he was thinking about running last fall. And, you know, we've had that, uh, this long conversation with him and his team about it's going to be strange until Labor Day. It always is. And, you know, there is an important battle for, for media hearts and minds, for activists. And for, this is very important to the back of the pack thing for goodwill. You know, how do you, coming into September, is your brand that you're, you're somebody that people should look into is, or is it that your brand that, you know, so many people are already writing off and that's, you know, obviously a fuzzy, fuzzy variable to look at, but an important, but you know, I, I've seen hundreds of races across the continent flip or, or, you know, careen wildly out of control after, after Labor Day or in American cities where the calendar is different, whatever the holiday equivalent of that is Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. So, you know, still very open race. And, you know, I think coming up with some positives, incredible solutions to add to the criticisms that are already out there for Mayor Stewart are going to be critical for any of the candidates who are hoping down see them. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Brian. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we have more in the future. No, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I guess to all my friends in Vancouver, make sure you're actively working for somebody because, you know, much more fun than voting and hope, hope things uh, are going well there for the city I know as, as the, uh, the strange big city across the strait. So. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Wasn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. It was good. We'll hopefully talk to him again. He's got a wealth of knowledge on how cities work and clearly cares a lot. But let's talk about the tweet of the week. <laughs> you know, it, it used, we, we've done like the MDD tweet and I could point you to one where she is alleging that like criticizing Cops the occupation like a... is a oh, hate crime. Uh, but yeah. we'll, we'll we'll just brush right by that and go to the machete tweet. <laughs> Sometimes you can only handle too much, like so much Melissa Genova tweets, and so we've reached our limit for this week. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, mayoral candidate for the MPA John Cooper has tweeted, "Quote: Machetes on open store shelves at Clark and Hastings. Not a good look at Dollarama Campus. at Mike Smith News. <laughs> he was quote tweeting." Uh, a now defunct account, J C L E R I D E S. That account no longer exists because the dunking was so severe that person just deleted their Twitter account. This person 
and someone else allegedly took pictures of not machetes. They are, as no. Camille Dumont, fellow park board counselor, says, John, these are pruning saws for tree branches. You're a park board commissioner. You're the longest-serving park board commissioner whose father was the chief botanist, I believe, or horticulturalist at the Bladell Conservatory. You would think you would know what that looks like. It's really like the cell phone kind of tweet where it's like, I hire gardeners, and I want everyone to know that I don't know what gardening tools look like. In other news, the Broadway plan uh, continues on June 9th for its fifth day of hearings. Over 200 speakers have been completed so far, and there are 30-plus amendments from councillors. Our thoughts and prayers are with the city clerk. I think partially we were hoping to record sooner because we thought the debate on this would have gone faster. Let's be honest. It, why we thought that. Like, I, no, I think... No. We should know better. Like, so... I, there's the standard criticism that this is taking too long, but I will defend it a bit in that this is not just a rezoning. Like, if this was five days for another townhouse development, that would be absurd. This is, like, one of the most significant plans that has actually come to a vote at this city. And so taking their time and hearing out all of the possibilities and making sure they get it right seems worthwhile. Just the challenge now is they may run out of beating minute time. Yeah, and I think that that's a legitimate concern, especially given this council. However, I, I tend to agree with you in that this is a plan worth debating and worth considering. And yeah, everyone still has more ideas to throw in it. Patrick Condon had another piece in the tie. The park board even put out its own statement saying there aren't enough parks in this plan that we get to control because everyone has to have their... And I think there, like, there is a legitimate argument there that public yeah. green space is valuable. But it's just like the fire department saying they need more fire stations. Although I would probably listen to the fire department on that. But Yeah, the fire department should should have as many fire stations as it feels is appropriate. The, the for... restaurant association saying they need more restaurants in it. We do There's need a... more restaurants. I gotta say, we need more restaurants and we need more bars in this city. I was just in Toronto and man, that place is lousy with bars. Like, everywhere. Everywhere, tiny little bars, just dotting the landscape. We don't have, like, the they don't have, like, the big warehousing-style tap-and-barrel-like things that we have here. It's just tiny little bars all over the place. That would be great. We need more well, of that. Well, Green Councillor Pete Fry actually agrees with you, and he has a motion coming up that's being debated today on that very issue. He wants to lift the moratoria on liquor primary licensing downtown. Uh, to support dual food and liquor licenses, to support the, quote, cocktail culture and vibrant urban nightscapes. This motion would apply to the downtown east side and Granville Entertainment District only, but it would lift the challenge for those restaurants or bars that want to be a restaurant food place during the day and a nightclub after dark. It's so close to what I want that it almost hurts. <laughs> But yeah, we should pass this motion. It, it would be a good thing for the city and a step in the right direction. On June 8th, uh, council also has the chance to extend Plaza Alcohol Pilot uh, for 2022 for six plazas. Uh, these are plazas that are dotted all over uh, Vancouver, not just limited to the Granville Entertainment District, although two of them are on Granville itself, though in South Granville. I mean, this was one of the city's moves to try to help 
social distancing during the pandemic and try to help fun. It did move faster than the park board's efforts to allow drinking hmm. in parks, uh, which they are still studying and still doing pilot projects on, but I think is getting a little bit more uh, ambitious finally. Justin McElroy actually had a great TikTok on the history of consultations on this. And I think he also tweeted something like the consultations will continue until morale approves. <laughs> Speaking of demoralizing things, Victoria has referred its missing middle housing initiative back to committee for more public consultation. Yeah, they had a motion come forward and a plan that would essentially upzone the entire city. Like it was a pretty ambitious plan that a lot of people were looking at single family lots across the entire city would be upzoned to townhouses and multiplexes allowing a lot of density to be added left-wing councillor ben isaac decided that this didn't necessarily accommodate enough affordability in some way or another and moved that it be referred back for uh further consultation and that passed five to four but not Brutal. all is lost. Brutal. This is what we call making the perfect the enemy of the good. But yes, what what is the timeline to to save the missing middle initiative? So, Councillor Steve Andrew, who is one of the more, I think one of the newer, I think he was elected in a by-election. He voted initially for this motion to refer it, but he was actually kind of concerned about the timeline. So now he's wanting to actually bring this back to council so he is doing a motion for reconsideration i don't have the you know victoria policy manual in front of me but it's a common thing that if you bring it up at the next meeting which in victoria is tomorrow uh, june 9th they will reconsider this motion to refer it and possibly undo the mistake yeah in general Robert's rules wise or or procedure wise, you have to be someone who voted for the motion, to, the successful side. You have to be someone who voted for the successful side in order to move to reconsider it. Yeah. So we'll find out tomorrow. It sounds like if he's in favor now of moving it forward and not sending it to referral, that this this could go forward. And Victoria might be, you know, one of the first cities to upzone its entire city. Part of this comes after the initial announcement of the kicking the can down the road. Housing Minister David Eby was really pissed and yelled at Victoria. And he's been making a lot of noises as we've talked about, like if cities don't do more to promote housing, then after the next elections, the hammer's coming down. Wonderful. Let's talk about some houses that are getting built. Yes, down in Coquitlam, on the banks of the Fraser, on a floodplain, near nothing. Fraser Mills is going in. So 16 this... towers ranging from 29 to 49 stories, as well as a low and mid-rise apartment buildings on a 37-hectare project. It's expected to add 5,500 units and approximately 11,000 people to Coquitlam. Yeah, this is, like you say, a bit in the middle of nowhere. Uh, for anyone who's taken Highway 1 from Vancouver to at least the Portman Bridge. On the left, at one point, you'll see Coquitlam, and on the right, you'll see the river and some warehouses. They're going to build it where those warehouses are or were. So this project's been in the development stages in one way or another for like 15 years, I want to say. Looking at some of the community posts on this, people are like, this has been around for a while, and it's finally got the green light to go ahead. 
there's still outstanding community concerns about the number of affordable units in this. It seems like it's quite low compared to what other municipalities are pushing on. But at the same time, for how long this is taken, get her done. This is a development from the BD Development Corporation. Braid Skytrain Station is like a kilometer away, so it's not super transit friendly, but it's also not impossible to get there. Yeah, I mean, you're going to end up with one of those community shuttles going back and forth. Yeah, I um, think one of the final things they had to do was BD had to agree to fund the bus to uh, the Skytrain until TransLink builds up the service. Fine. Yeah, so a couple of concerns about this uh, development. School District 43 cons- confirmed that their projections show a new school will be needed at Fraser Mills. They are working on planning that. The Ministry of Education has said that they are aware of the project and moving forward with the planning for that. Also, the Port of Vancouver has said that they are freaking out about... They haven't said that they're freaking out, but they've noted the quote-unquote alarming rate at which industrial land is put to other uses. And to that I say, fair enough. Industrial land is valuable, and we do not have very much of it. Yeah. You know, that those are the critiques I would share with this. Like, Coquitlam is doing a lot as I can say, living here to, you know, put towers in, put housing in, in many different ways. You can have the finer debates about the mix and things like that. Most of the projects I'm pretty supportive of. This one, I'm like, like, I probably wouldn't have voted against it, but it's also not the one that I'd be like, oh man, they're going to build Fraser Mills finally. I would love to live there between the highway and the river. You'll have super easy highway access if that's your kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm, I really hope for everyone who needs super easy highway access, this project gets built quickly. I would like to just bring up the fact that this is 5,500 units. Vancouver, in order to meet the demands of its city plan, will need to build Fraser Mills every single year for the next 30 years. Where Get... will they go, Matthew? <laughs> Where indeed? We couldn't tear down houses. That would be terrible. Well, if we, we only drive... have so many Concord Pacific lands to go, like it's. Think of the horses. If we take <laughs> the highway from Fraser Mills, though, we get into Surrey, where things are continuing to be chaos. Oh yes. So, Councillor Jack Hundile uh, brought forward a matter of privilege just minutes into the meeting, asking for Mayor Doug McAllen, alleged mischief maker, to resign. Uh, yeah, there McAllen... was a recent story out that actually pulled some of the court documents that fully discredit many of McCallum's claims. He said he was pinned to a vehicle during the alleged foot running over incident. And I think some of the witness documents that came out debunked that, which really raises the public's perception, I think, that a uh, prosecution is likely. And therefore, the question of why the fuck are you still the mayor? Yeah. Basically, Hundale asked McCallum to step aside and take his leave, take leave until the public mischief trial is sorted out before the court. McCallum responded by recessing the meeting before it was... And council erupted into chaos. Yeah, there were a lot of protesters at the meeting as well from Twitter reports I saw. Uh, I think on both sides, I don't even know who's showing up, but yeah, chaos is an accurate description of what's going on. In response to the chaos... uh, Jenny Sims is the Surrey Panorama MLA and will be launching her campaign today to become Surrey's next mayor. Yeah, right now, Brenda Locke, current city councillor who was elected on Doug McCallum's slate, is running as well. 
Sims is clearly going to try and go for the progressive angle as she was elected as a BC NDP MLA, although her time in provincial office has not been particularly clear of scandal. No, she resigned in 2019 as Minister of Citizen Services after misconduct allegations related to visa applications were made against her. Uh, However, uh, unlike Mayor McCallum, in 2020, a special prosecutor reported that the RCMP found no evidence to support his charges against her and cleared her of wrongdoing. However, she was not reintroduced to cabinet. Yeah, I think aside from the like official scandal there, there wasn't a huge level of confidence in the work she had done as Minister of Citizen Services. So it'll be interesting to see if she can, you know, regain her political momentum in this mayoral race. It sounds like she's not planning to resign as MLA unless she wins, you know, keep that six-figure job. Yes, so from what I understand, she is going to be taking an unpaid leave to campaign for. I think that follows similarly to what like Leonard Krogh did for the mayor of Nanaimo in 2018. It's not unprecedented, but it'll be, yeah, it makes the mayoral race a little more interesting in Surrey, at least. Yes, it, and it does raise the possibility of vote splitting. If too many people enter this field, it becomes crowded and makes it more possible for McCallum. However, like he did last time with a third of the vote. Yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, back in Vancouver... The Vancouver School Board is raising the ire of students at a number of its schools. We'll begin at Eric Hamber. Yeah, so two stories from the TAI, both by Katie Heislop, their education reporter. A-plus reporting. This is great stuff. Very good. Uh, Very good stuff. Speaking of reporting, this has come up before, and I don't think we actually talked about it. A number of students at Eric Hamber founded a student club called The Griffin's Nest, a local student newspaper where they want to cover issues and they want to, you know, do what do you do as a student. Do some citizen journalism. Yeah, it's super impressive. They actually sound like they're doing a really good paper and it's really good reporting. A number of the requests they've done are FOIs into how the VSB is being run and how their school is being run. And this seemed to have upset officials at the school and the district level and has seemingly resulted in a new... Poli- Set of a couple of new policies yeah. from the school district around clubs and social media posts. Yeah, the students allege that the guidelines violate the students' freedom of the press and expression under Section 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The guidelines include things like those club names must be descriptive of the students' club's purpose, uh, sensitive personal information must not be published even with consent, and most importantly, uh, clubs must have a statement of purpose that does not support views, quotes, antithetical to the educational values, end quotes, that the district is trying to teach. Which uh, seems like a catch-all phrase to basically shit on any club that is upsetting the faculty. Indeed. And relating to the social media, club's teacher sponsor. So every cl- club in a public school has to have a teacher sponsor who mentors the students and that's not controversial and the students are okay with that but the teacher sponsor under these policies is responsible for the quote creation access and monitoring and posting of all club social media accounts and the district reserves the right to remove any club social media posts or content that quote they consider to be inappropriate or in violation of this procedure this has also raised the ire of the students who note that like their social media is part of their reporting yes 
they are saying that they also are concerned that the rules could stop the paper from using advertising and fundraising to cover editorial costs, like the freedom of information requests that they've been putting in, and prevent students from publishing essays that contain personal information, which would result in an overall loss of student editorial control of the Griffin's Nest. All of this at the same time as the policy says the club must be fiscally self-sustaining. Yep. So, seems pretty much like an attempt to kill a student club to me. Yeah, the club has thankfully gotten a lot of support. I know a lot of civil society, the BC Civil Liberties Association, a number of other organizations are writing in support of this group, and I imagine they have no shortage of very smart, talented lawyers ready to, like, sue the crap out of the district, and I hope they do. Meanwhile, over at Britannia, the district is actually not at fault. It's instead, possibly, the Vancouver Secondary Teachers Association, who is squashing on rights and advertisements and free speech of people who are advocating for pro-SOGI representatives, Black and BIPOC representatives on the student council there. Yeah, students were putting up some posters around the school showing like a rainbow unicorn saying support for SOGI reps. Seems cool enough, but allegedly someone went down and tore them up. In fact, not allegedly, eventually VSTA union vice president, second vice president, Alyssa Reed, caught to being the person and teacher at the school who tore down the pro-queer candidate posters. Yes, this is after uh, the faculty informed the students that it was actually the Vancouver School Board who asked that the uh, posters be removed. This was not true. It was, as they call it, a lie. <laughs> and instead, it was someone who was part of the teachers' union there. Yeah, um, the union's not got a great history as well as Hyslop gets into in her story. Yeah, uh, they have, for example, hired an anti-racism educator to train teachers who has compared uh, LGBTQ2S plus advocates to members of the QAnon cult. Seems bad. Seems bad. Also, that teachers, uh, sponsors of the student government, have repeatedly questioned whether the political and ideological proposals for Black BIPOC and Indigenous reps elected by those communities themselves were proposals by the students alone, or if they were put up to it by, quote-unquote, radical teachers who sponsor Britannia, uh, Britannia's Sexuality and Gender Acceptance Alliance and or BIPOC student clubs. Which, I mean, part of this, part of this whole thing is that the student government wanted there to be SOGI reps, reps for Black, Indigenous, and BIPOC people on student council that were elected by members of those communities rather than, at least in the case of indigenous reps, uh, being chosen by the representatives of the grades uh, that had been elected by students. And I'm not going to get too deep into student government politics at the high school, but b basically they, they wanted people to have a ballot that they could vote on and ask people to, if they are not part of these communities, to not vote on those reps. However, they would be free to vote, so I don't actually see what the problem is. I think the problem are these teacher sponsors of the government who the students also allege said in private meetings that sexuality should be private, 
so don't need to bring that up. Don't need to talk about all this gay stuff. The teacher apparently allegedly also said that white privilege is a myth because some white people experience classism and that asking only self-identified indigenous students to vote would be akin to, quote, creating a reserve within the school. No, no, no. And this is bad. Absolutely not. It's really bad. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the story is is just bananas. Number one, like, sexuality is not private. Sexuality is is political and public. You don't have to put your own sexuality out there, but questions of sexuality are matters of public policy concern. And saying that it should be private is just akin to asking people to cause it themselves. So we'll have to follow up and figure out what's going at Britannia and what happens next, but... What? Yeah, if, if you are uh, aware of what's happening at Britannia or know any of the student government reps involved, please do get in touch. We are interested in this story as it is fascinating and infuriating. Just Meanwhile, to stick with the school board for one more minute, one thing I forgot to actually put in the notes, so I'm springing you, this on you, Matthew, as a follow-up to a story we've talked about in the past, is the Queen Elizabeth Annex School is dead. It's oh. closing down finally. Oh. Well, that's too bad for the Queen Elizabeth Annex School. That What a shame. It was decided at a school board meeting this week. It's a school that's been undersubscribed significantly. I think it's, it was down to like 50%. So it was very hard for the district to justify keeping it open. And they're going to find a way to manage the students there. And especially the French immersion students who have a charter right to their education. We'll throw a link to Katie Heslop's, uh, ex uh, you know, again, excellent reporting in the TIE in the show notes to follow up on that. Absolutely. Meanwhile, um, back in grown up government, VPD spokesperson Brian Montague has joined the ABC Council slate as its sixth candidate. Yeah, this was announced uh, this week on Twitter, just kind of a roundup of council nomination news. You know, they're slowly building out their slate, just like everyone else is. Yes, such as the Green Party, which has also announced its four park board and three school board candidates. Those candidates will be four park board, Tom Digby, Zara Ismail, Liam Menard, and Patricia Riley. Uh, the school board candidates will be incumbents Lois Chan Pedley and Janet Fraser, and uh, newcomer Nick Popel. Yeah. So congrats to all of them. Good luck in your campaign. Moving out to the city of Langley, there is a candidate who is standing up to challenge the mayor, current councillor Nathan Pachel. Pachel? Pachel? Sorry, Nathan. Pachel. He's trying to run on a sustainable, urbanist, it looks like, kind of platform. So be interesting to watch his campaign. Yes. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the list of declared candidates, Justin McElroy has a ongoing list of declared candidates over at the CBC. Uh, he is tracking the amount of candidates, and it is looking like we might have even more than last time. <clears throat> Wards. <clears throat> One reason we might actually have more is because, as he reports in his excellent Metro Matters newsletter, this is just a Justin McElroy stan podcast now, he notes that i think we, we talked about this back in the podcast early last year the city had passed this motion to say let's make it a little bit more difficult to become a candidate 
and to do that through raising the signature bar. I don't think they touched the deposit amount, but they focused on instead of having to only get 25 signatures to run for councillor mayor, you should have to get 100 or 200 respectively, which seemed eminently reasonable for the city the size of Vancouver. Yes, we we endorse such a, a measure uh, on this podcast and nothing has happened and it will not in fact be happening. So welcome to the race candidates. It's going to be ridiculous. Finally, we close every episode of the show with a Vancouverada, our look at Vancouver's history. This week's Vancouverada is a Pentecostal minister who was a Vancouver City Councilor member in the 1970s, Bernice Gerard. Yeah, I came across this name in some of the random reading I'm doing, and Church of Vancouver actually has a nice write-up on her. As you said, she was a Pentecostal minister, she was a university chaplain, uh, a radio television host, and for listeners will be most interested to know, you know, she ran for city council in 1977, serving for three years, really trying to build off her work in pastoral activities and chaplaincy. But I think most prominently, it was her campaign to stop nudity at Wreck Beach that people will re remember from her time on council. Yes, and I, I pointed out that Wreck Beach is not in Vancouver, but she was a, a university chaplain, so there you go. She felt that the Wreck Beach nudity would have a deleterious moral impact on the students at UBC. It doesn't. What should be known about her is that, like, in addition to her generally socially conservative views against pornography, for example, and nudity, she also considered herself to be an academic and a feminist. Or at least a lot of historians have kind of read her as an evangelical feminist because she has this interesting trait of wanting to be a prominent, you know, and seeing a place for women in politics, in leadership roles that isn't always shared in a lot of very conservative religious communities. And so she saw a place for women in ministry and that even in, you know, the 70s wasn't so long ago, but it was radical in many communities. And so... That's kind of cool to see. And, you know, she served on council. She, I I believe, failed in her bid to end nudity at Wreck Beach, but... Yeah. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, it was an interesting character on the list of many people who have served the Vancouver City Council over the years. And with that, we draw to the end of another episode of the Canby Report for the June 8th edition of the... Camera Report for Leg and Boot Media. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good day. <laughs>